As we go to open God's word once again together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love, and we ask that you would teach us your statutes. You have dealt well with your servants, O Lord, according to your word. So open our eyes that we may see Jesus by his spirit, for we ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated, and please turn with me in God's word to the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon chapter 8. If you're visiting with us this evening, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series through the Song of Solomon, and we've come to the end of the book. Um, So it's the the book right after Ecclesiastes and right before Isaiah. And so we're going to read together the last few verses, uh, chapter 8, chapter 8, verses 8 through 14. And we'll consider these verses together this evening. So Song of Solomon, chapter 8, beginning at verse 8. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall and my breasts were like towers, then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Balhaman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we've been considering this this great song, this song of songs as the Bible describes it. Um, For the past few weeks, we've been thinking about it in connection with the seventh commandment. This has been a sort of extended series on the seventh commandment as we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism and showing the beauties of love as God has uh, presented it to us, Uh, love and marriage as God created it in the world. And we've been given this wisdom, this opportunity to learn wisdom for how to love. We've been considering this song and what it has to teach us about love and marriage, and one of the things that we've learned is how often our world gets these things wrong, and therefore how important it is for us to get God's wisdom on these things. Um, One of the more serious issues I think that our culture is facing is an erosion of these kinds of values for love and marriage that has really decreased um, stability and happiness in the world. It's been sad to see what the world's ideas of these things has done to our culture in a relatively short period of time. Um, Sociologists have said, you know, probably the most influential movement following World War II was the sexual revolution, and it was surely, as one person put it, the most culturally transformative of the waves of change, liberation and individualism that swept over American life uh, at that time. Uh, There were wholesale transformations about attitudes, about love and marriage and physical intimacy that became very prolific in our culture and has certainly ended up downgrading our opinions on many of these things. Um, It's brought greater tolerance, as one person put it, for homosexuality, 
promiscuity, obscenity, pornography, and brought a marked coarsening of our culture. Um, and that's really sped up even more in our own day. I read, the, I read several articles on this years ago, and it was striking to kind of go back to some of those and see just how much further things have gone even since I read those articles. One of the ones I'd come across a number of years ago was an article that had this sort of provocative title, Eight Reasons Why Relationships in Your 20s Just Don't Work. And I don't know what I expected when I first read this article, but this is the line that really stood out to me. Our 20s are meant to be the best years of our lives. I don't know who said that. Um, I guess everyone who's not in their 20s, sorry. Um, Our 20s are meant to be the best years of our lives, the years in which we can be completely selfish, let loose, and ignore the consequences of bad decisions. To be honest, sometimes a long-term relationship can just get in the way of all that fun. At the end of the day, your 20s are the years where you do you, all in caps. Be selfish, have fun, explore the world. Um, This was probably written by a 20-year-old who didn't know what they were talking about. Um, But that's terrible advice, isn't it? If it wasn't obvious in the way I read it and the way I set it up, that's terrible advice. Be selfish. Let loose. Ignore the consequences of bad decisions. That's terrible advice. Um, That relationships just get in the way of fun. I think that captures some of the attitudes, and these attitudes come with really dire consequences in our world. Um, I remember my, my grandparents talking about going to their 30th wedding or 30th uh, anniversary, what do you call it, a reunion, high school reunion, and saying most of the people there were still married to their first spouse. That was sort of common for that generation. They were all still married to their original spouse. My parents, by contrast, said when they went to their 30th high school reunion, everybody seemed to be on their second marriage. They were the, the, the exception to the rule, still being married to their first spouse. These things have changed really rapidly. Uh, only 20% of the couples who married in 1950 saw their, their marriage end in divorce, only 20%. By 1975, it was over 50% of marriages were ending in divorce. Um, this was a statistic that really was sort of shocking to me. Approximately half of the children born to married parents in the 1970s, saw their parents separate, compared to only about 11% of those born in the 1950s. Um, That's a huge difference in just a short period of time. Um, And a lot of the attitudes the culture has about love and sex and marriage are directly responsible for these kinds of family breakups. Um, And one sociologist that I was reading who's not even a Christian, just sort of noting the trends that happen, thinks he can put his finger on this. And he says, in this new approach to married life, one's primary obligation was not to one's family but to oneself. Hence, marital status was defined not by successfully meeting obligations to one's spouse and children, but by a strong sense of subjective happiness in marriage. It's really just about me and my happiness and not about anybody else. That's the prevailing attitude. Um, And the irony is it has not led to more stability and happiness to embrace these attitudes. It's actually led to more brokenness and more unhappiness. And what a different picture is presented to us in the Song of Solomon. What a different picture is presented to us of love and marriage here. 
Um, I love how one commentator put it. Love is beautiful, and the biblical pattern for human love is the most beautiful. As the redeemed in Christ, men and women have the privilege of entering into this most beautiful of relationships with the wisdom that only God can provide. Um, In a biblical sense, this song is a song of songs because it doesn't really come to an end. Uh, It's a song that goes on. That's one of the beautiful things as we come to the end of our consideration of this song. The song as it's presented to us in the Bible comes to an end, but its themes don't come to an end. Uh, It presents us with this ending that we, we see as going on, as continuing on past the words of this book. And even as this song ends for us, as it's recorded in Scripture with these closing themes, the song will continue in the lives of God's people. It will continue in the lives of the people whose marriage is being contemplated in this song. Uh, It's a wonderful song in that sense that does not come to an end. And as we think about this beautiful song and as it's coming to a conclusion in the scriptures, we want to think about it under really two headings. As the end here celebrates the incomparable value of love and the unending nature of love. Uh, Ian Duguid in his commentary on the Song of Solomon Uh, thought about these verses under those two headings, the incomparable value of love and the unending nature of love. And I thought, I don't think I can do better than that, so I'm just going to steal it. Um, Although I don't think it's stealing if I give him credit. So the incomparable value of love, that's really what verses 8 through 12 are about. The incomparable value of love. In some sense, verses 8 through 12 are an extended meditation on what we read in the last part of verse 7. Uh, In verse 7, we read, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And because this continues to go and consider the value of love, it's a kind of continued meditation on that notion. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Uh, This is sort of an extended meditation on that incomparable value of love. And one of the ways it it presents it to us is by presenting us with people who would treat love as a kind of commodity, who would try to think of it as something that could be bought or sold or paid for. Um, And the woman will come and speak into the foolishness of that with her wisdom and think about the true value of of love. And so who's introduced to us here as people who are thinking about love as a commodity uh, in sort of monetary terms? Uh, well, the first people that we're introduced to is, again, the brothers. This, this group of others comes and speaks. It's clear it's not the wife and it's not the husband. It's another group of people who come and speak in this situation. And what do they say? We have a little sister. So these People are brothers. You have to be Sherlock Holmes to sort all these things out, right? These are brothers speaking. We have a little sister. Now, we've met her brothers before. We've met the brothers of this wife before in the book. Um, They appeared all the way back in chapter 1. We were told, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me a keeper of the vineyards. It was something that had compromised her beauty. She was so dark and so worried about the darkness of her skin from being out in the sun. And one of the reasons for it was her brothers who didn't have a thought for her. 
right? My, bro- my mother's sons were angry, and they made me the keeper of the vineyards. And so when we hear these brothers' voices speaking again, we should have alarm bells going off. That these have not been good characters before, and they're not good characters now. Um, We should think of the bride's brothers here kind of like we think about Cinderella's stepsisters. Right? When you hear that Cinderella's stepsisters are going to do something, you know, okay, this is not good. Uh, These people are not to be trusted. And that's sort of how we are to regard the words of these brothers speaking. They're people who we should be on our guard for whether their words can really be trusted. They've been presented to us as a set of men who are hostile to their sister. And we've already heard that their primary concern has not been for her good and for her well-being. So as they begin to talk here, we're meant to think of this as, ah, there's got to be something wrong here. This is not to be trusted as good wisdom. These are suspicious characters, and we have to take what they say with a certain amount of suspicion. Because at first, they seem concerned for her. They seem concerned for her immaturity. Um, You're too young for all of this. You really need someone looking out for you. They speak of her as if she's a child, not a woman, and in need of their protection. That's what, this is why it's important to know that we should regard these words with a little bit of suspicion, because normally it's a good thing when brothers look out for their little sisters. Right? I had a little sister. I tried to look out for her. Uh, she was pretty tough. She didn't need me too much. But um, I tried to look out for her, and we regard that as a positive trait when our older siblings look out for the younger ones. And so it could seem like, okay, they're really concerned for their sister. Isn't that a good thing? They also seem to be concerned for her purity. That seems to be the gist of what they're talking about. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Um, The walls and doors are clearly metaphors for her virginity and purity, and they're acting as if they're going to be concerned for that, uh, that they want to build that, that they want to protect that. Again, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, if we could really trust their motives. But again, I think their concerns seem to be more for themselves than for her. Self-interest really seems the motive of their, of their brothers. I think it's, it's in there in that the day that she's, on the day that she's spoken for, uh, we want her to be really valuable. Uh, let's dress up the good qualities. Let's make them battlements of silver. Let's make them doors of cedar. Let's make this something that would be really desirable in a suitor. Maybe something that would get us a very good bride price for our sister. They seem to be commodifying her in a way. All of these good qualities that they seem interested in protecting, they seem interested in protecting for themselves um, so that they can get a good price for her as a family. So that someone's willing to pay a good dowry that will build on the good aspects of her battlements of silver and doors of cedar so that we can really adorn her and get a price for her. Um, Here is, after just saying it's not something, love is not something to be commodified, 
were turned into financial terms, they're turning it into something of financial terms. Silver is a value of gold. It's something, not gold, something you can purchase. It's something that has a measurable intrinsic value. And they're turning these things into that. Uh, Silver is something that can be bought. Cedar is something that has value. It seems like their real goal is just to make her more marketable um, so that the family can get a better price for, from a suitor for her. They seem really to be calculated to get a benefit for themselves. And that's why the response she makes is so great. I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Her response is wonderful because she turns their, their presumed statements of protection around her to say, you know, actually I don't really need your protection. I'm neither immature, as you seem to think I am, nor am I incapable of defending my own purity. Um, you know, she takes that metaphor they use of indicating that she's not mature enough to be thinking about marriage and not mature enough to be fending for herself, and she turns that imagery around and says, actually, my breasts are like towers. Towers were the strong places on a wall. Uh, towers were the, were the vital points of defense. If you took the towers of a city, you took the city. And so she turns around the metaphor and says, far from being unprotected or needing your protection, I have been protected. Um, I have maintained my purity. I have maintained my purity. I'm not a child in need of your protection or defending. Um, My purity has been protected and kept for the one who I was willing to give it to as I should. I kept it for my husband as I ought to. Uh, One commentator said, she did not cast herself on everyone that came along, but preserved herself in modesty and purity for her husband alone. And she takes away those ideas of commodification or turning it into a kind of financial transaction by saying, one came to me who was not looking for value for his dollar, but who came giving me peace. It was actually the thing she didn't get from her brothers, but she has gotten from her husband. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. That's also a beautiful way of turning the metaphor around from metaphors of walls and doors and towers into not military imagery, but the imagery of peace. I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. And because of who he was, I was able to give myself to him. Not because he spoke for her or negotiated the right price from her brothers, but because of what she found in the eyes of her beloved. Someone who was not trying to conquer her or not looking at her only with self-interest, but was looking at her with a self-giving attitude, a self-sacrificial attitude. One who wanted her to find peace. Um, who put value on that. And this is someone that she could willingly yield herself to in a joyful act of submission. She knew that she could let down her defenses and welcome him to herself and find peace 
with him. And in love and marriage, she has found in him the person she had been keeping herself for, uh, the person who would give himself for her good and not try to use her for their own advantage the way her family had. Um, And this is a wonderful reminder that maintenance of our purity or the reestablishing of it when we come to the Lord or repent of sin, purity is not an end in itself. It's meant to be protected that it can be invested where it ought to be invested. Um, That it's not a value or commodity in itself. It's something that's to be given willingly as an investment. That was the wisdom of the family in Proverbs 5, instructing the son about how he ought to think about his own purity, warning him against giving himself to the forbidden woman, because they said there's no return in that. It's an investment without a return. Um, Proverbs 5, 9 through 14 says, Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, let strangers, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Uh, It's a commodity that's meant to be invested into marriage um, freely and fully for mutual service and enjoyment of the spouses that God chooses to give us. Um, And we see the value, the incomparable value, not only in how she thinks about it as opposed to how her brothers think about it, but then when it's contrasted to Solomon's household in verses 11 and 12, um, the incomparable value of love is seen when it's compared with Solomon and his household. Um, Solomon is brought up in verses 11 and 12. Um, And how is Solomon introduced here? Um, And what does the name of Solomon bring up when we think about love and marriage? Our first thought is he had many wives and concubines. Uh, The first thing we think about Solomon when it comes to marriage is probably what most of Israel thought about Solomon when it comes to marriage. Solomon had a vineyard at Balhaman. Now, Balhaman is not supposed to be a, a place like a location that we know. The significance of that name is what that name means in Hebrew. Uh, Baal-Haman means lord of a crowd um, or a husband of a mob. Um, And so that vineyard name is a perfect description of Solomon's household, right? He is the husband of a mob. He has thousands of wives or a thousand wives. He has hundreds of concubines. This gigantic household that needs to be managed almost like a commercial farm. Um, His vineyard is like a commercial farm that needs minders and workers in it to watch over it and to keep it. Solomon had a vineyard at Balham, and he let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. Again, there's a commodity there, right? A commodification of love and marriage. It's almost he's got such a big marriage operation going on that he has to hire keepers. They have to watch over it. They have to bring a return for the work that they do. It's, again, valuing something in a way that should not be valued. Um, Turning something into a financial enterprise that shouldn't be a financial enterprise. And again, the woman has a wise answer to this. 
My vineyard is my very, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, 200. But my vineyard, my very own, is before me. Um, she's saying, I don't want a marriage like that. That's so huge that it's like a commercial farming operation. I just have the one vineyard, my own. And there's only the two of us that enjoy it, me and my beloved. And I would rather have that than what Solomon has. Um, It's an interesting way of thinking about it, about the incomparable value of love. Her vineyard, she experiences life and love directly. She doesn't need keepers and minders, a whole operation. It's enough for her and for her husband. Um, They can find satisfaction together. This is how she's expressing this expansion on the end of verse 7 to think about the incomparable value of love. It can't be sold. It can't be bought. As the commentator said, love is free, but it's not cheap. Um, It has this value. It's too valuable to acquire. Once it's acquired, it's invaluable. And that's why as we've come again to think about marriage again and again and the gift of marriage and and this beautiful creation that God has given, um, it's a wonderful reminder of how well this suits as a picture of the love that Christ has for his church. You can't buy a relationship with God. You, you can't put a price on it. It can't be purchased. It can't be acquired that way. And it's sad because so many bad theologies exist that basically say that. You have to do something to make God want to love you. You have to do something that makes you lovable in God's sight so that he will love you. Um, and it might not be stated so crassly as that, But that's what a lot of those kinds of ideas boil down to, that I have to do something good enough to make me worthy of the Lord's love. It's a way of saying, I can put some silver on the battlements that'll make me lovable enough. Or I can put a little cedar on the door and make myself presentable. Um, But the truth of the matter is, there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves lovable in the sight of God. And the fact of the matter is, everything we do really only increases our guilt before the Lord. The only thing we really bring to him is our sin. But the wonderful truth is, you can't buy the love of God and you don't need to. God does not come to us and set his love on us to gain something from us. Or because he needed something from us. He comes as this wife said her husband came to, came to her just to give her peace. To be a blessing to her, not so that he could gain a blessing for himself. And isn't that how Christ comes to his bride, the church? Not to gain something for himself, but to give something to his bride. He gives her peace. Jesus is not a tyrant like the devil trying to enslave us and forcibly twist us to his will. But Jesus is a savior 
who loves us, in whose eyes we find peace, and into whose hands we can joyfully commit ourselves as one who loves us and will bring us to peace. It's safe for us to entrust ourselves into his care because of the great love with which he's loved us. That's the incomparable value of love in marriage and how it pictures the incomparable value of the love of God. It's of incomparable value, but it's also of an unending nature. The unending nature of love is also shown to us in these verses. Uh, Verses 13 and 14 reintroduce us uh, to the crowd or the chorus we've seen earlier. The husband makes reference to them. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. He brings up these companions that we've seen come in to the story t- from, from time, uh, time to time. Um, they came in first in chapter 1 praising the husband as the wife had described him. Uh, now they're all here as if the husband says to wait upon the voice of the wife to speak. Uh, she's being described as the one who dwells in the gardens. Uh, the garden has been described over and over again as their sphere of love and the husband is pointing out that it's his wife who dwells at the center of this sphere of love. Um, And in verse 13, he's presenting it as if the whole world has fallen in love with her and wants to hear what she has to say as much as he does. Uh, That she, as she's spoken in wisdom throughout this song, has made herself the object of admiration of all people, not just of her husband, but everyone who's there listening attentively to the wisdom of the wife. And her husband says that he longs to hear what she has to say. Um, It's this wonderful reflection on all the wisdom that she has shared. But even though he says, you know, it's as if everyone is here waiting to hear what you have to say. The whole world is hanging on your every word. Um, She really only has words for him. Everyone is listening. um, But her words are really only for him. Um, And what will she say to her husband? right? Um, We're all listening for your voice. Let me hear it. And what will she say? And what she says is not just important generally, but what she says ends the song, right, for us. So we're, we're building up to this. And she says, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. Um, it's a somewhat strange word for him to speak to her here at the end, for her to speak to him here at the end of this song. Um, The word translated here as make haste in Hebrew really is the word flee. Uh, Flee. It almost really never means make haste particularly. I think the translation make haste is there trying to help us make sense of the Hebrew, but it really just means sort of flee, escape, uh, get away. And I think we are helped by understanding what what she's telling him to flee from and what she's telling him to flee to if we want to understand what she's saying. Where does she want him to flee from? This crowd of people, right? She just wants to be alone with him. They want to get away together. It's wonderful that he says, look, there's this whole group of people that are just dying to hear what you have to say. I'm dying to hear what you have to say. We're all hanging on your every voice. But she's saying, really, I have only words for you. Let's get away from all of these people so we can just be together. 
flee away from all of these people and flee to me. Um, she's the mountain of spices in this picture. She wants him to flee away from all of these companions and flee just to her so they can be alone together. It's sort of reminiscent of earlier when they were you know, alone in the countryside before as husband and wife, and then they came back to the city, and then they were sort of constrained to obey all the cultural restrictions of the city. They couldn't be like they were when they were alone on the countryside. Um, and it's almost as if she's saying, we, let's get back to that. Let's go back to being where we can just be the two of us together. Uh, flee from all of these people and flee from them to me, where we can be alone together and enjoy one another together. And that's where the Song of Songs leaves us, with this vision of the wife calling her husband away with her so that they might be together, asking him to leave all of these other companions behind so the two of them can be together. And in a beautiful way in the song, not only is she calling him to leave all the other companions behind, she's calling him to leave us behind. Uh, We all get left behind here in the song. It's a way of them exiting the scene from our sight. Um, It's a wonderful story, a wonderful way to end, but it's a way that ends the story by knowing the story goes on. Right? It's pictured to us just how much he loves her here at the end. Right? We're, We're listening for your voice, let me hear it. And she speaks to him wanting him to come away with her. They're still very much in love here at the end of the song. Um, it, it, it cries out that love to us here as the song ends. So even though the song is ending, we know that in a sense the song goes on. It goes on beyond our view. This is not the end of the matter like we find at the end of Ecclesiastes. Where Ecclesiastes ends in wisdom, ends before the Song of Solomon, and its ending is, now all has been said, here is the conclusion of the matter. Notice that the Song of Songs doesn't end that way, right? Nobody appears at the end of the song to say, right, that's it, that's it everybody, thanks for coming. Everything's been said about love. Um, everything's been said, that's the end of our song. Um, no, there, there's nothing like that. It's, it's a song that doesn't end. It's not the end of the matter. It's presented us to, in, to us in a way that's not only grown, but we expect it to go, to go on in a beautiful way, even though we are not included in it, uh, their love goes on, and the song leaves us, as one person said, with the burning passion of desire that is not satisfied but continues to grow stronger and stronger. And that's a wonderful testimony about the nature of love, is that it doesn't end. Right? There, there's no one who would say, this is how you know when you've reached a point where you've loved enough. That love gets to this point, and then that's enough. You've loved people enough. Right? You can meet people who've been married 25 years, 35 years, 55 years, 75 years. And if you ever ask them, when did you get to a point in those years where that, you'd loved each other enough? That, that was, you'd reached that point. And they would tell you, we haven't reached that point. Right? Love is not something that naturally has an end, a conclusion, that you, you, you realize you're, you're racing towards a point, and then that point is 
completed. It's one of the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 under the influence of the Spirit that love is. It never ends. There's an unending nature to it. Human love knows no definitive consummation, no absolute fulfillment. Loving relationships are never complete. They're always ongoing. They're always reaching for more. Love is never satisfied in that sense as God has created human love. And there too, doesn't that give us a beautiful picture of divine love? If even in our human relationships we understand there's a kind of unending quality to love, that it's always growing, that it's always reaching out for more, isn't that a perfect example of the love with which we've been loved by our God? That doesn't have an end? Where God doesn't get to a point with us where he says, I've loved you enough? That's enough, you may not have more. Right, what is the nature of his love? as it's expanded on in the word. It's that he, there has never been a time he did not love us. If we could look down into the past, into eternity past, if that was possible, we would never see a time where God did not love us. And if we looked into eternity future, we could never see a time when God did not love us. Right? His testimony to his people is, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Love never ends because love never began. Love has always been. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's why when Paul gets to Romans 8 and says, are you worried that something could separate you from the love of God? That love cannot be ended by anyone. Right? That's why he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no end to it. That's why, in a sense, eternity is the only fitting place for us to go with the God who loves us because it's a place where nothing comes to an end where love will continue along with everything else. And even when the Bible comes to an end and wants to present to us the glories of creation and the glories of creation coming to consummation in the salvation and the end of all things, it presents to us a marriage supper. It presents to us a wedding reception. Um, It presents to us eternity as the beginning of something. Just as a a wedding reception is not everything, the marriage goes on after that. Even as the glory is presented to us, it's the beginning of something that goes on for an eternity. And what what is it that goes on? It's the love of the union between Christ and his church that goes on. The eternity of perfect, joyful, unbroken fellowship with our God and with one another that will never come to an end. Maybe that's why the Song of Songs has to end here because there are eternal verses that are yet to be written and yet to be sung that can only be sung by the whole church and can only be sung by the whole church in glory with her Lord. 
And so this is not the end of the matter. Uh, All has not yet been said. In fact, not, not all will ever be said because love will always go on because God's love for his people never comes to an end. May he speed the day when we'll sing those verses together with our God in glory. And might he fill our hearts to continue to grant us wisdom to love one another as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wisdom about love and how much this wisdom for love in our human relationships shows us so much about divine love. And so we thank you for this wonderful song of songs about wisdom for how to love. And we pray that you would write its lessons deep on our hearts, that you would help us to learn this wisdom and to apply it in our lives. And as we do, to see the great love with which we've been loved by you and by your son. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.